Well, about a week ago, I saw something that just stopped me in my tracks. Absolutely stopped me. I stopped. I was focused in on it 100%. And it was a quote of all things. A quote. It was a quote that provides insight into the deepest longings of our soul. And I'm not exaggerating with those words. It, it really does. This quote, it explains why kids will often cling to their parents the way they do. And then it also explains why teenagers, as they get older, they want to cling to a boyfriend or a girlfriend in ways that go way beyond just being attracted to somebody. This quote explains why some grown men remain mama's boys for life. It explains why there's also such a high percentage of men all around the world, well, people, I should say, why such a high percentage of people all around the world have daddy issues. It provides insight into feelings that are associated with singleness. It also explains why if you feel trapped in a loveless marriage, why that is one of the loneliest, hardest feelings of them all. The quote explains why you isolate somebody if you're interrogating them and you want them to break. It explains why good cop, bad cop works. This quote explains why so many young women, they'll get pulled out of trafficking and yet they'll go back to their pimps. This quote also explains why spouses, if they have to serve in the, in the, I shouldn't say have to, when they serve as caretaker for years and years and years for their spouse and the spouse dies, why often there's such a close death that follows that. This quote explains why living with loneliness has been statistically proven to have the same effects on our lives as smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. Loneliness does. And it's also why there's a universal, you go around to any culture, any place, why there is a universal longing to appease the God or gods you believe in. This quote, that's why it stopped me in my tracks. Because it speaks to all of these things. Are you ready for the quote? You've been ready for the quote since, yeah, here's the quote. And I put it in the bottom of your notes so that you can take this home. It's even richer the more time you spend with it. Here's the quote. Every newborn comes into the world looking for someone who's what? Looking for her. And you can substitute the hymn and it still works. Every newborn comes into this world from the time of our birth. We are looking for the person who's looking for us. This explains almost everything that we see in human behavior that isn't driven by sin. Almost everything. Off the top of my head, I can't think of a quote that does a better job of summarizing our deepest shared human longing. We are, con we are wired for connection. Can I get an amen to that? We are. And, and at every level, when people say, oh, we're wired for connection, it goes beyond just, hey, I, I want someone to be around. We are wired for connection. Brene Brown knows as much about all of this as anybody on the planet. And she says this. She says, a deep sense of love a deep sense of love and belonging is an irreducible need of all women, men, and children. We are biologically, cognitively, physically, and spiritually wired to love, to be loved, and to belong. Out of all the keys to human flourishing, and there's quite a few of them, out of all the keys to human flourishing, there's none more crucial than this. None than having joyful, securely attached relationships. When that's not in place, depression and shame and anxiety and loneliness and fear and insecurity and feelings of shame and abandonment, all of these things can take root and take root deeply. In our first service, we had a number of people who are counselors and they were like, mm-hmm, while we were talking about these things. 
So what does this have to do with Christmas? Tomorrow evening, we're going to come into this room and the last thing we're going to do together, sing joy to the world. And it is our heartfelt prayer that you're going to be able to sing that from your heart. That there will be joy that goes as deep as it can go because that joy is connected to what your soul longs for most. And that is to truly know that you know that you know that you know that there is a God who pursues you. And that, that relationship you're longing for most, and he's waiting for you to receive him. That's our hope and that's our prayer. That the one who has counted, that you know this, that the one who has counted the hairs on your head, the one who knows all your fears, he knows all your doubts, he knows all your secrets. And he's crazy about you, even though he knows all your stuff. For you to know that you know that you know that he absolutely loves you, loves you. And he pursues you with a love that is patient and it's kind and that he's made a way. He's made a way for prodigals like you and me to come home. Amen. Well, how do we know this? How do we know that God pursues us with that kind of love? There's a clue in one of the three gifts that we've been talking about throughout this series. You know, one of the three gifts that the wise men brought to Jesus. So we're going to work our way there. Let's backtrack just a little bit. All the way, actually, let's backtrack all the way to the beginning. Beginning with the ancient prophecy that we opened this series with three weeks ago. The prophecy comes from the prophet Isaiah. He's the prophet that we've been looking into his words over the last three weeks. And he prophesies this about Jesus. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name what? Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. There's a place to write this in your notes. Isaiah testified to a God who draws near to us. Not a God that just sits back at a distance. Let's see how all this plays out. He draws near to us. In the fullness of time, Isaiah's prophecy came to pass. God did come near in that way. And when he did, a light appeared in the night sky, and that star captured the attention of some seekers from the east. And Matthew wrote about this in his gospel when he says in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east, they came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we've come to what, did they say? We've come to worship him. They said we've come to worship him. And they worshiped with more than words. Let's jump to verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary's mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now, in those time and in those, that place, nothing too surprising so far in the sense of they brought valuable things to this king. These were valuable things. They brought these valuable things to the king. But what we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks is how this was spirit-inspired worship. It was more than just, hey, we're bringing valuable things. Each one of these says something about the king. They were prophetic in what they were. Let's begin with the gold. Just a quick recap from week two of the series. In week two, we talked about how you can learn a lot about a king by how they steward the kingdom's gold. Can we get an Amen. Right? How they treat the kingdom's gold. And the kings of this world generally feel entitled. They feel entitled to take, take, take. 
Gold is something they hoard. Gold is something they hang on to, even though it's not theirs to keep. King Jesus, so different when it came to gold. So different than the kings of this world. Instead of taking and hoarding, instead of using his gold to create idols in his own image, King Jesus, he entrusted us to steward his gold in ways that are good, in ways that are just, and in ways that are generous. And when we follow his teaching, we follow his example, everybody wins. We win because we're not just chasing after the stuff that we can't keep anyway. And the world wins because we're investing in ways that make a difference. For all these reasons and more, God first giving, it's worship. It's worship 101. Okay, what about the frankincense? If you missed last week, I'd encourage you to go listen online. Because Caitlin did a great job of unpacking the history. There's a lot of history around frankincense. Frankincense was much more than a valuable resin. Frankincense was involved in a form of authentic worship that was meant to be exclusive to God. The word worth worship, the word worship, English word worship, comes from an older English word that means worthship. Worship comes from a word that meant worthship. When you authentically worship, you're properly ascribing worth. Now that can get kind of just seem disconnected from real life. Let me give you a practical example of worthship. There's a, a documentary came out like last year, I think it was called Free Solo. How many of you seen Free Solo? Isn't it incredible? It's about this guy. He climbs a 3,000 foot cliff with no ropes. And some of the grips, these holds that they have, they're just, he calls them imperfections in the granite. It's supporting his entire life. And you, you see this thing, and I remember, um, we were sitting on the couch not too long ago, and, and I saw that thing scroll across the screen as one of the options we could watch. And I'm like, Laura, this is so crazy. And I go off and off and off on this guy who accomplished this great thing. It was worth, worth worthy, you know, of, of appreciation, as is the case, as is the case when there's these accomplishments of other great athletes and artists and chefs and creatives. You see them do this thing, and you're like, wow, you know. What does it have to do with God? Well, you escalate it infinitely, right? Look at God's great deeds. Look at the sunsets. Look at the mountains. Look at the oceans. He's worthy of a type of worship that should be ascribed only to him. Only to him. That's frankincense worship. To reserve our highest praise, our deepest devotion to God alone. And to, to cleanse our hearts and our homes of anything that would challenge his place. In our lives. All right. So that's frankincense. Now we're coming in to myrrh. Myrrh. The one we haven't really talked about much yet. Now myrrh was the unexpected gift. The most expected, I should say, sign of them all. The children of Israel, when it comes to gold, hey, they were hoping for a king who was not going to take, take, take. They were hoping for a king who wasn't just going to hoard all the gold as if it was his. They were expecting and hoping for a king like that. When it came to frankincense worship... I mean, they already, the, the Jewish people, they already had one true God. They believed he was the almighty creator of the universe. They already recognized you're supposed to worship him like no other gods, have no other gods before him. But myrrh, man, myrrh, that one could trip you up. There's a place to write this in your notes. Myrrh testifies to the price that was paid to welcome you home. 
Myrrh testifies to the price that was paid to welcome you home. The gift of myrrh was presented to Jesus as a child. And what do we see as we get to the end of his life? Myrrh comes back. And myrrh is there when he's on the cross. And myrrh is there in the linens as they wrap him and they put him in his tomb. So this gift of myrrh, the reason it's going to trip a lot of people up, it's associated with Jesus' suffering and his death. Even before his birth, the angelic messengers testified that the salvation of this new king, this salvation is going to be different. This is from Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 through 22. But as Joseph considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her, it's from the Holy Spirit. She shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he's going to save people from all those knuckleheads. Is that what it says? No, it doesn't say that, does it? It's going to save us from what? He's going to save us from sins. Whose sins? Our sins. That started to trip people up. Because they're like, what do you mean save us from our sins? What about those Romans? The ones who are occupying our land. What about the Greeks? The ones who are corrupting our values. What about saving us from those Sadducees? What about saving us from those Pharisees? This was far more fundamental salvation than that. This is the one that came first. As we said before in this room, if, if God were to rid the world of sinners, who does he have to rid the world of? Everybody. Everybody. Myrrh testifies to the price that was paid to welcome us home. And this is, this is where we begin to see how valuable you are to God by the price that was paid for you to welcome you home. Now, this was foretold by the prophet Isaiah. The more you dig into Isaiah, the more you say, this thing is so filled with so many gems. Let's take a look at one of those. This is out of Isaiah chapter 53. So if you have your Bibles with you, please open with me to Isaiah 53. If you don't have a Bible, we would absolutely love for you to go home with one as a gift today. Uh, we keep a stack of them there at the table. And if you're here, as just you're here to see your niece or your nephew or your grandkids, and you don't have a Bible at home, please take one um, as a gift to you. We would love for you to have a Bible in your home. Here we go, Isaiah 53. Uh, we're going to start with verse 2. We're going to actually just look through verses 2 through 6 because it's all we got time for today. But read sometime, read the chapters that head up to this 53 because it gives it such rich context. What we see in these chapters leading up to 53, we see people, this, this wrestling, this wrestling. Okay, there's all this sin in our world. And have we sinned so much that we have now separated ourselves so that there's no hope from God? Isaiah says, no, there is. And it comes in the form of a suffering servant. That's what comes leading up to these verses. Let's learn more about this servant. And we start right away, we start to see this servant doesn't look like a lot of us would expect this hero to, to look like. Let's start with verse 2. Verse 2, 53. Verse 2 says this, For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. So, let's say you're charged with casting this movie and you got to find someone to play Jesus who looked like Jesus. Do you pick Brad Pitt or, or Zac Efron? You, no, you, you, you 
You, you don't. You, you pick someone who looks normal. Let's, uh, <laughs> it wasn't supposed to be a laugh line, but evidently, <laughs> evidently. Let's look at verses three through four, maybe. I don't think you'd be laughing about this one. Here we go. Look at this. Here's some more about this, this suffering servant. Surely he's born. Oh, no, actually start with verse three. He was despised. He was rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. We esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. We esteemed him, esteemed him stricken, smitten by whom? To say, smitten by God. Remember this, smitten by God and afflicted. Now, this section is far more interesting in context than I ever knew. I, I started digging into this section this week and I came across something I'd never heard before. In the ancient Near East, at the time of this being written, they had a practice that they called the, quote, right of a substitute king. Here's how it worked. Let's say that there was an eclipse that came. Let's say there's a drought that came. They would look at that as an omen. Uh-oh, we did something wrong. Uh-oh, we're in trouble. So what they did in a nation like Assyria, they said, okay, well, at least the king said this is the plan. King said, get me off the throne, get me into a safe house, and I'm going to start doing all kinds of purification rituals. While that happens, let's get some substitute king. Let's take some nobody that we don't care about. Let's put him on the throne. And so when the smiting comes, who does get smited? Poor substitute nobody gets smited while the king is in the safe house. And at the end of 100 days, at the end of 100 days, if he's still alive, Let's sacrifice him just to be sure that the God is appeased. How radically different is Isaiah's prophecy than that? Because instead of somebody being sacrificed to save the king, what happens? The king is sacrificed for us. No wonder people had such a hard time getting their heads around all of this. Look at this, the next verse. Look at how the pronouns are repeated in verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his stripes, we are healed. The world wasn't used to this kind of king. God demonstrates his great love. By purchasing our peace through his sacrifice. Look at this, verses 6 through 7. All this was prophesied hundreds of years before Jesus. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. And yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth mouth. Wow. This tripped people up in Jesus' day. They were not used to seeing a king like this. They had their, a hard time, hard time getting their minds around a God who would take up a cross for them. And as I was reflecting on that, I started thinking about our day. And in our day, I don't see many people who have a hard time getting their head around that, except to really actually take it deeper than just kind of giving mental assent to it. Here's what I see. I don't see people getting tripped up by saying, oh, God would sacrifice for us. 
What is it that we see? We see people who get tripped up saying, what, God would ask something of me? What I'm seeing more and more of is people who say, whoa, whoa, whoa. What do you mean God says pick up your cross and follow me? I heard this on the radio. It came from an atheist. And he said this. He said, God created man in his own image. Man has been returning the favor ever since. Interesting, it comes from an atheist that he made that observation. That we begin creating God's in our own image. And in our day, people can't get their minds around a God who would say no to the things that we want. They can't get their minds around a God who doesn't answer our prayers the way we think he should. Or a God who asks us to forsake riches or forsake pleasure or forsake power or forsake popularity for his sake. It's a lot easier, a lot easier to get our minds around a God who's a kind of God, right? Who's... who's Hey, just if you can kind of be committed to me, if you can kind of follow me, that's good. But that's not in his character, is it? His character is not a kind of character. That's what Murr reminds us of. He was all in. He was all in. God did not demonstrate that he's kind of committed to us. If you want to prove, I was thinking about this, if you, if you want to prove that you can be trusted, if you're going to ask somebody to believe something, or you're going to ask someone to sacrifice something, if you want to prove that you're trustworthy as best you can, if you want to say, I am for you, trust me in this, I can't think of anything you could do greater than laying down your life for them, right? If you want to say, I'm going to be asking a lot here, trust me, I care about you, I, I believe in you, I'm for you, I can't think of anything that demonstrates that more than laying down your life. And what did Jesus say on the night of his crucifixion, the, the eve of his crucifixion, the night of his betrayal, he said, greater love has no one than this, that they would lay down their life for their friends. And then he didn't just say this, what did he do? Lay down his life. Calling us friends. The king calling us his friends, laying down his life for us. They say myrrh, forms like a tear on a tree that's been wounded. If you've never seen myrrh before, I, I have a little bit of it there and I put it by the cross. After the service, you can take a look at it. It's like a tear that forms on a tree that's been wounded. And that cross, that cross testifies to a king who was pierced on a tree for our transgressions. But it doesn't stop there, does it? There's an empty tomb that testifies to a day when there'll be no more crosses. Can I get an amen to that? Where there's going to be no more tears. There's going to be no more sickness. There's going to be no more loneliness. There's going to be no more death. And he says, trust me in this. He lays down his life. And then there's an empty tomb that testifies to these things. The only one the only one who can fill the longing ultimately that we were born with, he has come. And he's more than kind of committed to you. You know, people handed down some of his stories and think about the stories that he told, the stories that Jesus told. Think about those. Stories about a lost sheep. Stories about a lost coin. Stories about a lost son. In every one of those stories, there was something of great value that was lost. And there was celebration when that which was lost came home. He's telling those stories about you, about you. 
the good news is even better than this. What I've been describing so far, it's even better than the king of kings seeking you out in that way. When God went to a cross, the king of kings became a sacrifice for the subjects. And in that one-of-a-kind sacrifice, it had one-of-a-kind results. And this, too, is a prophecy from Isaiah. I had forgotten, again, that this prophecy comes from Isaiah. This is Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Here's the, what was released in that That wonderful sacrifice, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be white as snow. Though they were red like crimson, they'll become like wool. When you receive Jesus, he doesn't just welcome you home. You get a fresh start. Can I get an amen to that? You get a fresh start. The guilt, the shame. It's gone. It's gone. What a gift. That's the gift our soul longs for most. To know that you're loved, to know that you're forgiven, and that you're welcomed home. How do you receive that gift? I don't know how you improve on the words of Paul. I think if I were to say, what's the myrrh response? We talked about a gold response, talked about frankincense response. What does a myrrh response look like? How do you improve on what Paul said, Romans 12, 1 through 2? He said, therefore, in view of God's great mercy, let us present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Don't be conformed any longer to the patterns of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, his perfect, his pleasing will. As we get further along with our our church, we begin to to get better and better at helping equip our young people with memory verses. Guess what's going to be on our memory verse list? This is so powerful. So powerful. And as I was reflecting on these things, I'm like, this is the Murray response, right? This is to say to the God who laid down his life for us, God, okay, right here, right now. I laid down my life to you. What you say with your help, I'll do. Where you lead with your help, I'll follow. My life is yours. Even if I don't understand, even if it seems like everybody else is going a different direction, even if it costs me everything. And as I was reflecting on those words and this passage, these words came to mind, and there's a place to write these in your notes. When we conform to this broken world, when we conform to this broken world, we contribute to its brokenness, don't we? With a show of hands, how many of you say, this is a broken world? There's a lot of beauty, but it's broken, right? It's a broken world. What do we do when we conform to it? We contribute to it. Who wants to make what's broken more broken? Let's not conform to this world. Let's be transformed, Paul said, by the renewing of our mind. So then that brought me to this next talk point. I start thinking about this. As we're renewed... We become part of the what? The renewal. And who wants to be part of that? Right? As we are renewed, we become part of the renewal. Think about this too. This is an invitation. Not only does the king think you're worth dying for, he believes in you. He believes in you. He doesn't just believe you can be part of the renewal. You're part of plan A. For we are his workmanship created in Christ to do good 
works, which he prepared in advance for us to do, the word says. You know, this is a beautiful thing. I, I was in my office last night, and you could ask, he was here at the first service, Cam. Uh, one of our young adults came into the office, Cam. And I was right on this spot of the message, doing my final prep, and I had a different illustration that I was going to use. And Cam walks in, and he's fresh back from Juarez. He went to visit our friends down there at Emmanuel Children's Home. The guy was glowing. He was glowing. Absolutely glowing. There's nothing like being part of something significant. Especially when you sense and can sense and sense and sense, God is with us in this. When you're doing something that matters and you're like, God is here and present in this. And not only that, one of the reasons he's going too, he got to do it with his brothers and sisters in Christ. They love Cam down there. Canelo, they call him. Canelo. It's just, anyway, they, they love him, love him, love him down there. And he loves him back. And, and he's glowing because he gets to be a part of something significant. He gets to sense God's presence while he's doing it. And he gets to do it with people he loves. And I got teared up because Cam's, that, that takes a sacrifice, you know, to be able to make that commitment. And I got teared up because the sacrifice he's making with them, he also makes with the kids right here, including my own kids. He's been pouring into our teens from the start. But here's the thing. You talk to Cam about that sacrifice. He'll, he just, he'll blow it off because it doesn't feel like a sacrifice. Isn't it true that when we authentically lay down our lives for God, and it's not the Catholic guilt, it's not the Lutheran guilt, it's not the Baptist guilt, it's not the covenant guilt, right? When we authentically are laying down our lives for God, isn't that when we come alive? Can I get an amen to that? That's when we come alive. That's the irony. That's the paradox. Call it what you're going to call it. When we authentically are laying down our lives for God, that's when we become alive. We want to experience more life in 2020. Here's a twofold invitation. Part one, you can write these down if you want. Let's behold the king tomorrow evening. Or whenever you're going to be participating in a Christmas Eve Eve service or Christmas Eve service, wherever you go, make sure you behold him. Don't do it as a go through the motions. Soak in the wonder of that moment. The way we're going to do it here is we're going to try our best to recreate those fields where the shepherds are watching their flocks by night as best we can in a rented space. And then we're going to sing, you know, oh, come all you faithful, let's gather for this. And then we're going to join in, in words that were sung by the angels. And then we're going to follow those shepherds to a manger. We're going to soak and behold the wonder of the king of kings becoming a baby. And then we'll go forth singing joy to the world. Behold him. Whether it's tomorrow night, Christmas Eve, whenever you're doing it, behold him. But here's what we should do in preparation for that. Let's receive our king. Right here, right now, for the first time or the first time again, let's receive our king. Not as a kind of king, because that's not receiving him as king. Let's receive him as king. Say, God, what you say, with your help I'll do. Where you lead, with your help I'll follow. I'll lay down my life and I'm going to find this new life in you.